Hey everybody, welcome back to the Skip It podcast. I'm Lee and joined by John. Hello. And Ashwin. Hello. And today we're going to be discussing with you episode 22 called They're Singing Me Back. This episode aired on July 22nd, 1968. It was directed by show regular Eric Fullylove and written by uh, not Ross Napier this time, but Kay Keevney, who only actually wrote this one episode of Skippy, but did write seven episodes of the 1950s show The Adventures of Long John Silver. And this one's really impressive wrote 156 episodes of the 1961 show the story of peter gray now i actually haven't heard of either of these shows have either of you heard of uh, either one of them no. i haven't heard of those shows but i am quite happy that Roth napier isn't writing this just because of style <laughs> of writing i don't think it's suited to an indigenous cross-cultural episode so yeah, good no, i think yeah. i think they up the up the uh writing caliber and maybe contracted it out because they were like oh we need someone that has a little bit more uh of uh repertoire than ross maybe <laughs> uh, <laughs> it would be but... weird if he was putting cd comments into this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a it's 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 dodgy enough as it is, but yeah, no, and yeah. yeah, no, I didn't know that Peter Gray one, and it's about a priest. Yeah, I think, like yeah. both of these shows being, you know, nineteen fifties and early early nineteen sixties are ones that we're not really getting repeats on. So I don't know, unless you find it on a streaming service, I don't know where you'll see these shows. No, no, and I'm surprised that there was a um, Australian. Uh, Long John Silver show, which yeah. you know makes sense a bit because we're a bit nautical, but yeah, I didn't realise there was such a market for it because it seemed elaborate and a big production. Yeah, yeah. Well, on this episode here for the cast, this episode stars all the Hammonds plus Skippy and Clancy. We also have a guest star, Candy Devine, who plays Moona, and Harry Carpenter, who plays Old One. So I'll provide a bit more information on Candy when she appears, but just a note that this is the only appearance for a Harry in any sort of media. Yeah. Also, the Aboriginal tribe in it, I guess they're the cast as well. True. But I'm sure you'll get all to them as well. Yes, absolutely. All right, so this episode starts with Sonny and Skippy out checking the tape recorder that we saw in the last episode. And Sonny hears not only kookaburras, but also a sort of warbling sound. It sounds like. He's not really sure what it is. He turns off the recording and hears this sort of singing continue, sort of a singing moaning sound. And that's when from out behind a rock, we see a woman in a yellow dress appear. She is moaning. She's quite distressed. And she comes up to a very scared looking Sonny at this point and collapses into his arms saying, they're singing me back. And that's the hook that leads to the credits. So Ashwin, I'm curious, what were your thoughts on this hook when this started out like this? Yeah, when she came out, because I heard that sound as well, such a unique sound for the show. Originally, it sounded like yodeling or something like that. That's quite interesting, that sound. So I was wondering how they were going to explain that, because I'd forgotten last week, Johnny had previewed what this episode was about, and I'd forgotten that setup. So I was like, oh, this is going to be a yodeling episode. <laughs> uh, and also, Sunny was dressed in a MAGA hat. It looked like something. They're really setting up the contrast for this uh, episode. Mega hat yodeling. Where are we going with this episode? Um, and then she comes out, and my first reaction was, okay, if this is 1967, I wonder how dated this show is going to be, uh, dealing with Western and Indigenous issues in the show. So I was quite curious at this point to see, you know, how they were going to deal with it. Yeah. And it is done in an interesting way. So we'll, we'll keep going on with it. So after the credits, Sonny and the woman who we don't know who that is yet, he does introduce her at that point as Moona. They approach Matt and Mark outside the house. Matt says, and it sounded like 
hello, Moora. John, did you notice that he didn't say Moona? Yeah, he sort of pronounces it a little bit funny, uh, yeah. down to, I guess, uh, Matt's English pronunciation um, classes. Well, yeah, or I thought, has he just misread the name in the script and he's memorized Moora instead of <laughs> Moona? <laughs> sure. <laughs> maybe N does look like an R, maybe, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It was typed well, out. Uh, after this, Sunny tells Matt that she's run away from her tribe as they're trying to sing her back. So I'll go into a bit of who Candy Devine. Now, uh, is it Devine or Divine, do you think? I sort of read it as Divine, Candy Divine, but that's just my thing because it rolls off the tongue more. But I I read it as Candy Divine, but yeah, it could be okay. Devine. Well, I might say Divine because I'm not sure. And apologies <laughs> to anyone who is a relative or Candy herself, if she's listening, if I'm mispronouncing your name. But the interesting thing is that is actually her stage name. Her real name is Faye Ann McLeod. She's an Australian-born broadcaster, singer, and actress. She was also a radio broadcaster and singer in Northern Ireland for over 35 years. Um, in terms of her heritage, it's quite multicultural. She actually has Sri Lankan, Filipino, Spanish, Danish, and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. Her parents were co-founders of the Cairns Multicultural Music Group, which was called the Tropical Troubadours, and they later established the city's coloured social club. So I could only really find six TV credits, one for Skippy, two others as an actress. Another was an appearance she made on a 1970s show called The Ernie Sigley Show. The last two credits were actually soundtrack credits for All Dogs Go to Heaven and also for the songs in today's episode, which I'll get to as well. And a little bit of trivia, she was awarded the MBE, which is the member of the Order of the British Empire, in 2014 for the Queen's New Year's Honours List for her services to broadcasting and to the community in Northern Ireland in Lisbon, Antrim and Northern Ireland itself. So she's pretty impressive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lee, also on that list of cultural backgrounds, you go, I mean, I'm glad there was Torres Strait Island in there, which yeah. is still, you know, not quite Aboriginal, but it's so interesting that they couldn't find an Aboriginal actor back then in Sydney or in Melbourne who could have fitted that part. Yeah, it is very strange because also the other Aboriginals that are part of her tribe, they're um, the Aboriginal theatre from Yakala in Arnhem Land and Northern Territory. So they're not even local Sydney. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of interesting that they had to outsource all of that, you know, to other people outside of Sydney. Yeah, hmm. but you are right. Like, at least they used Indigenous Australians yes, for that yeah. group. And at least, you know, while she wasn't necessarily representative of the particular tribe that they say she is, she at least was a person of colour. And not, she, you know, I'll yeah. be honest, when I first saw her, I thought, oh, my gosh, please don't be a white actress in, in uh, makeup. That was my yeah. first concern. So, thank goodness that wasn't the case. Yeah, no, and there is a reason why they cast her. Like, she's yeah. very talented. But also, I, I just wanted to note that her son is um, Donald McLeod, who's a celebrity chef born in Dublin when she was, because she married an Irishman. And he uh, was on, like, Ready, Steady, Cook and a whole bunch of stuff in Australia, and they live in Brisbane. So, um, oh. yeah, I thought that was interesting too. All right, well, uh, so back to the episode. Matt then says, once he's now met, Muna, he says they should go inside the house and ask Mark to get some clothes. Sonny warns that the chief, which is called the old one, is singing her back, which means she can hear him in her head. I was curious about that clothes piece as well, thinking, well, because he didn't really look like her clothes were that torn, and I couldn't work out what kind of dress that was. It wasn't a traditional dress, I don't it was, think. Yeah, it just looked like a sort of slip. Yeah. Yeah. Lee, can I just point out, at this point, I was actually quite surprised at how 
open mat work for telepathy. Science, Mr. Science and Nature. And this yep. is quite an indigenous practice. I thought he would have dismissed telepathy, but he was he was very accepting of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love that part where um well Sonny's immediately accepting, but of course, because Sonny is a kid, but yeah, Mark yeah. has a very in- interesting reaction. Not one yeah. you'd expect. All right. Well, well let's get to that. So we then cut to the old one and a group of indigenous australians who are chasing her now this is the group that you were mentioning before john while this is happening we hear some aboriginal music it's also mixed with some western organ music which i thought was interesting ashwin did you like that theme yeah now i'm just trying to think back on the theme was it quite a dark and brooding music like a villain style music wasn't quite villainous it was maybe ominous only because Uh, you've you've now set up the fact that this is like a spell almost to bring her back to lure her back but it was just interesting that they mixed in this organ slightly just to give it a a bit of a western tinge i want to say on this point because this episode it wasn't like a plot action driven episode in the past Mm. it was really about two cultures coming together and i think that music really contrasted the western world and the indigenous world they gave them very distinct sounds looks styles as they were presenting them so the music was a part of that yeah and what it was was the music sticks you know were clicking away and then you'd have a bit of of the organ like yeah, chirping in yeah. every now and then and it it was a little bit eerie and a little bit sort of you know put you on edge a little bit mm. and this is as um the tribe and they're all painted in white paint and um done up you know in their tribal clothes and they've got spears too yeah so you know they're a little bit of a intimidating presence when you first see them and they're they're sort of going through the bush tracking moon is, and where she's gone Yes, and that's the thing. They find a piece of her dress and then they realise that they're on the right trail. So back at the house, Matt then asks which tribe Muna belongs to. And it was hard to make out. I think she said the Ilianja tribe. Now, in Sydney, the original inhabitants and who we acknowledge as traditional custodians were the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. Now, there were about 500 different Aboriginal peoples in Australia, each with their own language and territory, usually made up of a large number of separate clans. So it's possible if she didn't say the Ilianja she said another one. So just flagging this in case I'm misrepresenting her, in which case I apologize. I definitely don't want to do that. It was just hard to make out. There was no subtitles for me to double check as well to see what it was that she said to get the correct spelling. But mm. uh, I know that that is definitely a tribe there. It wasn't necessarily a Sydney one, though. Yeah, and they could have just sort of filled it in because they didn't know themselves. Who knows? <laughs> well, it's an interesting point because, I mean, one of the things that we've always struggled with in Australian schools is actually learning about our heritage. Like, our real, we, we basically come with the Captain Cook arriving and all the sort of invasion, really, of... Mm. Yeah, it starts from the colonial era and, unfortunately, the interactions with Aboriginals usually disintegrated, you know, with most of those interactions at some point. And we never got the story of before. Um, and a lot of kids in Australia would have gotten the um, Dick Rusby and Percy Therese children's books. And they're all uh, painted and sort of done in a very traditional art style. And that was my main experience of Aboriginal cult- culture. And they just told the stories of like the Arnhem Land people and, you know, the great rainbow serpent and all of that sort of stuff. So with school and stuff, it really didn't go into any of that. Yeah. And it'd be good if we could start learning that because I understand that it's not pleasant because I mean, we the really the white Australians are the villains in this piece. If you really look at it from a point of view of wiping out and enslaving an indigenous peoples but at the same time let's just learn about it and just don't do it again like it's a lesson to say look this happened and let's just not make those mistakes ever again 
All right. So Matt then says, based on her answer, she's walked a long way. Clancy then arrives with some clothes and Matt says, Muna can stay in Sunny's room with Sunny bunking with Mark. They then leave to let the girls change and Clancy says, Muna can have a shower. Muna doesn't understand what that word means. So Clancy asks, who taught her English? Muna says, Mrs. Gray, to which we then cut immediately to Matt, telling Sunny and Mark that Dr. Gray is an anthropologist and he and his wife were living with Muna's tribe for some time. So when Matt says that, Sunny reveals that Mrs. Gray wanted to take Muna back to Sydney. Mark asks if that's why she ran away, in other words, to get back to the Greys, and Sonny says the chief wanted Muna to marry his grandson. Sonny says that's awful, but Matt explains, white explaining, that it's the way of life for them. Mark asks about singing someone back, and Matt goes on to explain that their people have strange powers, like telepathy. Mark then says, can they wish someone to death over miles? And Matt says that they just want her back, not to do her any harm, and that's when Sonny says that they should help her, um, yeah, so John, what did you think of this sort of representation of the Indigenous Australians with these sort of magical powers? It's not surprising because, that you know, we're coming out of in the 60s. What I was surprised about with this episode, it is actually not as bad as I thought it was going to be because it is one of those things where they've just made it a clash of two worlds and there's this girl stuck between them, which is sort of a very old common tale but what I thought was interesting was that, I don't know, you could place this anywhere in America or, you know, anywhere colonial-wise and you could pretty much replace it with the same sort of situation. Um, and I just thought it was interesting how Matt, as Ashwin said before, was like, it's what we would call telepathy. Like telepathy is like a scientific <laughs> accepted thing and like i sort of you know love all that sort of other stuff and the dream time stuff of um the aboriginal culture and stuff but it's still one of those things where he's like totally like bang yep no they you have special powers Uh, and and i'd like how mark was (laughs) immediately like could you kill somebody with that yeah yeah Yeah, mark's slowly becoming a dark character but i reckon this is a bit like mick dundee you know like mick dundee was very practical no nonsense Mm. tell it how it is like guy but he could also hypnotize dogs and and buffaloes yeah and buffaloes so he has this mystic side as well as the practical side so i just think we Got to see Matt's mystical and side in this episode. You're absolutely right because I remember in Crocodile Dundee, he's been taught by the local Aboriginals in that area, like how to do all of the stuff, and that's why he's sort of so, you know, in tune with everything. Yeah. Well, we then cut back to the tribe who are still on the march, and we then cut back to Muna, who has her hands over her head as the singing is going on in her head, as was alluded to before. Then she gets up and looks in the mirror. Loving the way she looks at a new white dress. So this seems to cure Muna as she goes from an expression of anguish to delight. So, Ashley, I'm curious here. Is this the writer's way of saying, just become white and all your worries are over? <laughs> yeah. This was definitely a white-centric episode. Like, I would actually love to see this exact same episode written from the tribe's point of view when <laughs> they're losing a tribe and Matt's the villain and he's trying to kidnap the daughter by seducing her with Western ways. This yeah, is very and much pretty dresses. Yeah. And pretty dresses and, yeah, so, I mean, it it did feel quite colonial in its outlook. But for a colonial episode, it was actually quite respectful Mm. in its own way. So, yeah, Yeah. I thought it was a mix. Sorry, I was going to say also, you know, when the tribe was calling her and she was having, you know, issues and she was grabbing her head, it it was like a bull roarer. And they're those uh, things that they have on sticks and it's like a flat piece of wood and you tie it to a piece of string and you 
spin it around yeah and it creates a really eerie uh scary sound and apparently they were used all around the world so a really common thing but i just thought it was a really good use of that and like aboriginals use it because it um you can communicate sort of over really long distances with it so i thought that was just a interesting like little oh the sound guy's on it yeah it's good that they finally got a good sound guy to do that this time (laughs) and so while this is happening matt is on the phone to the grays explaining the situation and getting nowhere he says to jerry who is next to him mrs gray thinks muna could become a great singer the people however wouldn't allow it Jerry asks why she didn't just leave, and we get a very grave-looking close-up on Matt, and he says, like he's telling a ghost story, she can't leave the tribe, because they'll bring her back, and when they do, and that's when he snaps the pencil in half, but a second ago he said that they didn't want to harm her, so this is totally making the tribe seem like some scary cannibal, you know, witches. It's it's sort of a very interesting back and forth with them trying to make it perilous, but then also going, no, there's no threat. Well... Inside the house, Clancy is showing Muna around and they get to the piano. It makes music, Muna says, as if she's never seen it before. And then she says Mrs. Gray wanted to teach her music. Clancy jumps on and plays, and not scales this time, but an actual song. Yeah, that Muna then sings along to. And Mark and Sonny come in and ask if she knows any other songs. And she sings the song, Walk You High. So I'm curious, uh, Ashwin, we learned that Mrs. Gray didn't get to teach Muna music, which means Muna just knew this song. But this song is in English with very Christian-influenced lyrics. So shouldn't she have sung a more traditional song, something from her tribe? Like, how could she have known this song? Yeah, I wonder if she spent time on a reservation or something like this and learned these songs. But I was also going to note the songs that she sings in it are written by Charles Marrowood, and he was a pretty well-known a composer, mainly of film scores and soundtracks. He wrote songs for Malena Dietrich in Australia in 1968, White Grass and Boomerang Baby. He also wrote the music for Australia 1965 Nine Network TV series Boomeride, the program for music variety show that showcased young Australian talent. Uh, and the main claim of fame is that one of the young performers featured was that of a teenage of Livia Newton-John. Wow, uh, singing a Marrowood song. It's it's really good because the songs you could tell were quality songs. It wasn't just like the writers said, let's just throw some melody together. It was, you could no. tell they were well constructed. Yeah, there was they sort really of included th- piano music. Like some yeah. songs, you really need a band behind you, but those were just simple, alluring songs, captivating songs and just with her. They were songs that are a little bit old fashioned, like songs that you know that your grandparents would really love. Yeah, and quite somber. Yes, very sombre, um, but Candy Devine is a really good singer. Like, she's really, really good. She is. Her voice is magnificent. Her voice had, like, a, a base to it, a character and depth. It wasn't just high pitch. There was some real sort of character in her voice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. yeah, I was really like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, and as I said, that's why she was cast. Well, it explains as well why Matt and Jerry overhear the song and they come in to listen. And Clancy and the others say the song was amazing and she should have her chance to sing. And Sunny then says, see, Muna, told you dad would help. <laughs> now, after this scene, we cut back to the Aboriginal tribe, putting on more tribal markings. They're sitting around a fire. That musical theme resumes. And it's, again, that sort of intimidating theme. 
back at the house, Sunny is taking Muna to the bed and says, not to forget that no one can make her do anything unless she believes that they can. Left alone, Muna looks out the window and repeats that sentiment. Sunny then tells Skip that Muna is afraid of the dark, which I doubt. She might be afraid of being lured back, but I don't think she'd be afraid of the dark. Back at the Aboriginal camp, they're playing didgeridoo. They're using those sticks to make a a pretty intense-sounding, fast-paced rhythm. That music also was slightly getting faster in tempo. Yeah, it was getting faster every time, yeah. Yeah, and we're focusing in on the old one whose voice runs louder than the others, and he's singing in... And again, I don't know what the language is, but it would be that specific, I'm assuming a specific to his particular tribe. And this is now starting to affect Muna, who is tossing and turning in bed. And finally, she gets up, goes outside. Outside is Skippy, who watches as she leaves the house. And she's obviously drawn to that singing like the spell is taking hold. And it is a fairly impressive and elaborate song that that tribe were doing. The dance was really well choreographed. Mm. As part of that ritual, they were using their spears. They were stabbing at the fireplace and really like impactful. It was just a really well constructed scene in terms of creating a mood and ambience and the power of that music. And it works because we see Moona walking through the bush towards them. So, John, did this song make you want to join them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it definitely was impressive. Because, yeah, like just to set the picture, they have got all the ceremonial white paint on and there's sort of like a line of uh, guys playing the sticks and the didgeridoo and then a line of uh, guys coming down with their spears and um, they come around the bushfire. And we later find out, because Matt says... You know, it's a corroboree, so they're, you know, having a, you know, tribal dance. Uh, and this is why it's sort of interesting because I'm assuming this is their traditional dance that they would do up in Arnhem Land and they would, you know, down in Sydney doing it as well. So it's sort of interesting that they utilised all of that into the plot, um, which was, you know, very clever writing, I think. Yeah, and spent time filming the choreography like it wasn't just making it really and and making it mean something because you know when they stab those spears that's when she's like oh like she has to get up and leave yeah there was a time in this episode where i thought okay they're just using stock footage of aboriginal tribes and trying to work that into an episode but it was just during this last scene i thought okay there's nothing stock about this moment no really tying it into the story yeah so back at the house sunny rushes into moona's room and then calls for matt he enters with jerry and they notice she's gone i'm curious to know how sunny knew to run into her room at that point because if he didn't know that she'd left he's just run into her room in the middle of the night yeah what's even funnier is matt and jerry are still in their uniforms <laughs> in the middle of the night they're just like sleeping in their beds in full ranger uniforms it's maybe they've got the- khaki pajamas <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the. It's actually uh, Terry Towling. Flannel. Imagine, it's flannel. I can imagine. Although maybe they've got like a khaki wedding suit, like everything in khaki, <laughs> like Steve Irwin used to do when he yeah. went on like the Daily Show. <laughs> yeah. That's all he wore. Well, Matt then possibly in his pajamas goes after her. He denies Sonny the request to go with them, saying that he'd rather he not go. And then we see that Skippy is leading Matt and Jerry to Moona. So that suggests that she saw the way that Moona went. Matt and Jerry finally then start to hear the music and they tell Skip to go back to Sunny as they can make their own way from there. And the music keeps building in intensity as it lures Moona closer and closer. We then go back to the ranch where Sunny is now telling Skippy that Matt didn't really say he couldn't go, just that he'd rather Sunny didn't. So he's asking Skippy to take her to Moona. We then see Moona stumbling into the tribe at last and the song ends because it's done its job. The old one does not look happy to see her. It's pretty strict, pretty stern, obviously because she's run away. And they speak to her again in their own language. They don't try to put, well, 
They don't speak in English at that point. Muna responds in English, uh, defying them and saying that no matter how many times they call her back, she'll keep running away. And that's when they run away. So I thought that was interesting. Like they, they didn't try to, you know, anglicize the entire thing, but they needed, no. I suppose, because considering they weren't using subtitles, her speaking English was a way just for us to understand what yes, was going what's on. happening. And I yeah. guess him understanding English, but not necessarily, well, he does speak English, does, yeah. but we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, Matt and Jerry then arrive and Matt calls out, hear me, old one. And he sort of announces his present and then he approaches. But then what I thought was funny is after he does this Moses on the mountains type announcement, he then approaches them and he calls him old man. So yeah. I was thinking, was this again a line flub or was that an insult? I don't know if that was his name, but I just thought, what is happening to Matt in this episode? He suddenly switches into like full biblical English and it's like, he's speaking to someone who speaks English as a second language and he's like, Honor and dignity shall be bestowed upon her. (laughs) This is where the episode gets really good, but then also very embarrassingly cringy. Um, It's sort of the best part of it because Matt just makes a goose of himself, the way he's talking. And um, I was just waiting for the guy to, like, crack out going... All right, calm down, mate. I can speak English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this is—it's sort of like you know, in Avatar, when Jake at the very end, he has this like moment where he approaches the village elders in front of. I wonder if James Cameron saw this episode. He was inspired <laughs> because it's essentially all the tribes people are around, and Matt's entered, and Moon is just being taken away, and he approaches the old one, and Matt says, "As a father with sons." This old one should not keep her from doing what she wants. He says that she could be happy with Matt and his people. And the old one says that Matt's ways are not theirs and he should respect their traditions, which Matt says that he does. And there is a lot that they can learn from each other. This is where it gets really corny. The other guy was saying, look, these words, they're of honey. And that's what the greys brought. So Matt's trying to negotiate with him, saying that, you know, Moona's voice would bring respect to her people. But before a decision can be made, Sonny is suddenly brought out, having been caught by the tribe. And the old one says that they can make an exchange. Moona stays with Matt and Sonny stays with them. But Matt says, no, no, that's not the same. It's totally different. He says the difference is that Moona wants to go. Yeah. Where Sonny would be taken by force. So he kind of explains that. Then they have this sort of semantic discussion about the definitions of force and different kinds of force (laughs) that was really weird oh and can can i just also just sorry i just wanted to say while this is happening the old man is speaking english but it's really heavily dubbed um and and it's sort of pretty bad and jarring It, it was like as i said you could replace this with like a native american and a you know colonial dude like it's just so cliched and the way he also says old man my name is hammond he's speaking like a caveman and it's just embarrassing and like the whole thing words are honey my words speak my mind the old yeah. one says the white people uh, greys spoke words of honey to girl and turn her against her, her own people and like it's yeah. just that's not how Aboriginals speak English, even if they can't speak it very well. They don't speak like uh, Native Americans from a a Western. Yeah, Um, I think this adds to the division between the two groups. Just to cry, when you talk to Aboriginal people, make sure you talk like a robot. It just adds (laughs) a barrier between people. Probably there. Oh, but also, sorry, the whole crutch of the thing was his son, his grandson is going, he wants his grandson to marry Moona, and that's what the problem is, because 
as all this is going on, Moon is sort of taken away by this guy who's, when you first see him, one of the tribal guys, a younger fella, where he smiles really, like, you know, happily yeah. and then takes off Moon. And I was like, oh, that's the groom-to-be. So that's sort of this, the crutch of the problem is that he he wants her to marry. And then, as you were saying, there comes this really bizarre deal where, and I love Sonny's face in this because Matt, reassures him and says you're not going to get hurt but then immediately sort of puts him up on the bargaining block for trading him with Muna <laughs> and like he obviously says oh no it's not the same it's but, just know, such a funny situation because Sonny's just like thanks dad you just bloody sold me down the river yeah but in Matt's defense like Sonny did disobey his orders and come yeah. out at night and sometimes you need to be punished with child trafficking Muna's Moon is the better deal because she is a really good singer. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, at this point as well, Muna, being a very decent person, comes and says, look, until they let her go, she'll stay with them. She just wants them to let Sunny go back. And then this does convince the old one who tells Matt that this totally wins him over. He's like, Matt, you're a good person. And Muna <laughs> should go sing and bring honor to her people. And that really solved it. So just Moona jumping in there and sticking up for them made him realize Matt must be a good person. And then the tribe leaves and they have a really symbolic action in this next shot of Sonny and Moona holding hands, like the two cultures, black and white, holding hands in harmony, close up on that. Yeah, they really sort of drummed that message home. Yeah, Yeah. I felt like the right ending. I felt like they were character archetypes, like that conversation, that negotiation would have really in reality happened over months with many interactions but they just wanted to stylize it into one philosophical dialogue in fact when you mentioned earlier Lee they talked about the nature of force I was actually quite thought provoked by that moment because I thought okay yeah there's overt force where you kidnap a child and take it and then there's a more subtle force where you make one culture more dominant than the other so people are naturally drawn to it I thought okay that's that's quite a philosophical discussion they seem to be condensing Well, then we do get the final end scene, the the last two minutes that we always get at the end of a Skippy episode. We see Matt's on the phone with the Greys and basically wrapping up all that will happen to Moona and her future singing career. So setting her on the path that she always wanted to go, or at least was influenced by the Greys when they heard how great of a singer she was. And she's so grateful. She asks, how can she say what she feels? And Sonny says, please, Mooner, and just walks her straight to the piano. (laughs) Sing, sing. (laughs) I know. I was just kind of like, do what we say. But there she does sing the final song, and she's got tears in her eyes, and the song is aptly called I Must Go. It was another, you know, very English-sounding song, but like you said, John, written by Charles Marrowood, and a really nice, somber, sad song. Mm. We see a close-up of Sonny listening, and he's looking up at her face with not tears in his eyes, but, you know, clearly looks very sad to see her Mm. go. So, yeah, that was the end of the episode i think we've probably made this really clear it was a very interesting episode it was very different from previous episodes of skippy i'll give them a definitely a good you know a for effort in trying to do something that touched on indigenous australians even though there was a bit of sort of mixing things here and there that maybe shouldn't have been and there were some cringy moments i think overall i did enjoy it i think it was thought-provoking and it had its flaws but overall uh, i'm going to give it four gum leaves what about you ashwin yeah i'm similar to you i liked this contrasting of worlds style of episode they had to slow the action down i thought they did a good job of contrasting worlds in their own way like we're 50 years removed from this now so it's very easy for us to look back on it uh, with some criticism but i thought for the time um, I thought they did it very well. 
they sort of stylized a whole lot of issues into a little bit of dialogue, like telepathy, like reconciliation, like um, the nature of force. That's quite a lot to pack into a 24-minute episode. So I thought they did a very good job of stylizing that for the sake of the episode. So, yeah, you could tell there was some talent there in the writing. Yeah, and I thought it was very good. So I'm going to give it 4.1 gum leaves. Oh, great. Yeah, it's a shame they never brought the writer back to do any more episodes. No, yeah. he might have been better. Yeah, so what about you, John? Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was a little bit deeper uh, than a lot of episodes we've seen. It had a lot of layers there. And and then also, I think we've got to remember that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Island, Northern Territory people only got the right to vote in 1962. So, like, we're only, what, like six years or so after that? So I I was surprised at how good the episode was with all of that because I was imagining sort of probably the worst and some, you know, like we won't go into how they treat women and animals on the show, but it was definitely a lot more respectful than I thought. But then also, as I said, it could have been copy-pasted almost from any... Because this almost feels like a Bonanza episode where they're meeting with the Indians or something, you know. I'm sure there's an episode where there's an Indian girl that's trying to run away from her tribe and, you know, they're trying to help her and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm sure that's like a real common thing so but i won't sort of take any points away from that because i think that's what they those episodes were sort of part of the you know tv lineup then um so i'm gonna say i really liked it i liked the integration of most of the stuff in it four and a half wow great we're all in the fours yeah Yeah, i've been in the 3.1s lately so it's quite nice Mm. to come back to the fours with a really good episode so the real question now is, will the next episode live up to the quality of this one? John, what is going to happen next week? Okay, here we go. Um, we're up to episode 23, Tara, part one. Sonny and Skippy discover the hidden entrance to a remote valley thought to be uninhabited. There, Sonny makes friends with an old Aboriginal who lives alone. One day, Sonny finds Tara weak in a semi-coma and that he has been visited by by the death spirit, and he is about to die. So, continuing uh, our Aboriginal theme, join us for that episode. Yeah, I'm concerned that it's a different writer. Hopefully, they'll have the same tact as this episode, but yep. join us next week where we will tell you all about it and find out. So, until then, I'm Lee, and with me has been Ashwin. See you guys. And John. Thanks, guys. Skip, 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 skip,